Welcome to Judy's Podcast. I am Mr. Judy, and today we are going to get a little nerdy. We're going to start going down the philosophical path and exploring political ideologies in America and the history of individual responsibility, liberty, and equality, taking a look at the history of those beliefs, some events in American history that have shaped the way that we believe about those ideas, both then and now, and then just kind of look a little bit down the path at where we currently stand with our own version of American liberalism and American conservatism. So buckle up, grab a cold drink, and let's go. All right, so starting off with the idea of where we are at now with our political ideologies, American political culture has largely been shaped by waves of immigration, both of thought and of people. Now, these immigration waves, whether they were thought or people, affect American socializing agents. A socializing agent is a process of thought through which individuals acquire knowledge and experiences and culture in order to assimilate into society, or in this case, politics. Basically, we're trying to answer the question of what makes you believe the way that you do. And throughout most of American history, that would be the family, particularly the mother. And if you're an older sibling, you're more likely to agree with your parents on political thought. However, what we have been seeing since the 1960s and 70s is that schools are starting to become more of a stronger socializing agent and in some cases have actually replaced parents. And some of that is due to the rise of households where both parents work and different schedules in which students at times begin to spend more direct time with their teachers than than they do their parents. Early European settlers in America brought over many enlightenment ideals that really shaped American culture and politics, notably our Constitution. And the first one was the idea of individual responsibility. You see this as back early as as Jamestown even. The idea that individual responsibility is a legacy of the American Revolutionary War in which we fought against Britain on the field, but also on a philosophical plane of government control. Because the perception was the King of Britain was exercising all sorts of undue amount of control over Americans, that there was a lot of of what we would now call big government type policies. Most Americans really opted for the opposite, this right of individual responsibility and a little bit of a critical nature of government, not necessarily critical in the idea that it's a bad thing, but critical as in the idea of maybe we should question these policies that get passed and really ask what the motivation behind these policies are. It's also It's also important to note that Americans had largely grown up under this idea and this policy that we call salutary neglect in U.S. history, by which the British monarchs had largely allowed Americans to do mostly what they wanted to as long as taxes were paid and the problems were kept at a minimum. And so when the French and Indian War happens and there's a change in in prime minister 
and a change in philosophical thought within Britain, all of a sudden that's when you really start to see Americans start to to fight against these ideas and going, wait, wait, hold on. Like you let us have this individual responsibility to take care of ourselves. Like we stayed on our side of the ocean, you stayed on yours. Why are you now changing the fact that that everything has to happen and and apply to all? Like you can take care of your subjects there, leave us alone and we'll continue to pay our taxes. And so this is a philosophical fight that I, I referenced just a minute or two ago that the British king and the, and the prime minister were creating these these policies that Americans looked at and said, no, this is this is too big and it's too harsh. And you're taking away that individual responsibility that I once upon a time had and loved. And so. So out of that, you see in a lot of early American history documents that the words liberty and equality. So we're going to explore those ideas. Both liberty and equality have had an inconsistent history in America and of the two. Americans have generally chosen and encouraged liberty over equality. Now, I'm going to take a minute to define those words for you real quick. Liberty is generally referred to as the free will within any set of boundaries, the power to do as one pleases, freedom from physical restraint, freedom from arbitrary and despotic control. Basically, what we're looking at is the power of choice. Equality, on the other hand, is the state of being equal within something like status or rights or opportunities, the same measure, quantity or amount. And when you apply the ideas of liberty and equality to what's happening with the American Revolutionary War, the idea is we want equality for all to be free from, from the British king and a prime minister's rules and taxes, but we want the liberty, the individual liberty, in order to in order to, to do what we want and the ideas of individual responsibility and liberty have primarily been the guiding lights of american political philosophy and largely shaped the beliefs of american political parties today and i'm going to talk a little bit more later about how equality was kind of pushed to the side and how it's still this kind of changing concept that we're trying to figure out at the moment Okay, heading into our next section, the two isms of early American history. America's first ideas of politics are largely rooted in what we would refer to as classical liberalism. And classical liberalism agrees with the philosopher Thomas Hobbes that government exists to protect individuals from each other and minimize conflict within that sphere of influence that man should be able to act freely within the laws and that laws regarding behavior should be minimal. This led to the social contract in which man gives up certain basic rights in order to have a government that rules over him and, and pr provides things like protection and makes important economic decisions, resolves conflict and provides public services. So I, under classical liberalism, like I agree to give up these rights, but the government is also supposed to be answerable to me. And in America, the condition was added 
that the government exists essentially to protect individual rights, notably life, liberty, and property. And, and we chose these individual rights over the ideas of, say, like nobility, because we Americans really tried to distance themselves as much from nobility as possible. And society and government are a product of the people. They are created by people. They are run by people and should not be above the individual. And so when people kind of gripe and say the government isn't working for me, essentially what they're saying is that the government is too big and that the government, I'm being, I'm being left out. I don't feel connected to the government anymore. So again, classical liberalism is, is this initial idea. And it was a really big thing during the Enlightenment. And because it took hold in America for a couple generations, this is when around the time of the Revolutionary War and you get people like James Madison and, and Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Franklin, they all are primarily growing up with ideas of classical liberalism and shaping our nation using these ideas. During the Revolutionary War, another competing idea to classical liberal, classic liberalism became a little bit more popular, and that's the idea of civic republicanism. Civic republicanism places emphasis on virtue and public good and less on the idea of individual freedom. And so civic republicanism doesn't necessarily mean the same idea as equality, but it validates the idea that the majority should rule because everyone's political opinions are of equal weight. And if that is true, then if the the majority of thought should then be the, the ruling consensus of society. And, and you see that within the Constitution, that there were different compromises made in order to get the Constitution ratified and passed. However, states were allowed to cer create certain policies that they would feel are best for, for the citizens of that state. And the marriage of these ideas between liberalism of uh, the government should be answerable to me in the social contract and and civic republicanism that, you know, public good should sometimes take preference over the individual. These are the type of ideas that at the start we are still grappling with today and in different ways. As in, you know, when when the government passes a law, it's essentially having to ask, is this good for for the majority or is it good for a minority group? And typically we still have the ideas of civic republicanism rooted in our political thought today, because a lot of times we tend to still pass laws regarding the majority over the minority groups. And so just to kind of wrap up and go back over this real quick, classic liberalism, civic republicanism, American revolution. It's this conglomeration of these three of these two ideas in this one big event that really starts to create what Americans believe. And so out of that and through other experiences, Americans are largely going to decide for liberty or protecting the power of choice. And that will be our next section. All right, I'm going to call this section Deciding for Liberty. Noted French diplomat and historian, philosopher, Alexis de Tocqueville, observed that America at some point was going to have to choose between the ideas of liberty and equality. 
the Civil War really started to become the catalyst of the conflict. While the Civil, Civil War centered on slavery and states' rights, it was also a fight between the ideas of liberty and equality on a more philosophical level. Because after the Civil War, the Second Revolution, in, or Second Industrial Revolution, which, again, think Gilded Age into the 1800s, a little bit of reconstruction in there, pit liberty and equality against each other in a more direct conflict, and it's going to primarily center around the ideas of wealth. In the aftermath of the Civil War, mass amounts of wealth created the liberty of private individuals to build factories and organize relationships with banks and created what we now refer to as the wealth gap. This wealth gap meant an inequality for workers. And as management was a little bit more polished and refined, an idea that we have a middle management and an upper management and an organizational management, each level is going to, at, in some way, have inequalities. So American individualism was slightly redefined as it became the liberty of one man to become rich while another man would be poor. American reform efforts have largely focused on reducing economic inequality without attacking or radically altering, altering the system that creates it. And, and so just kind of going over this section real quick, when you look at early American history policies, both are trying to find this balance or many are trying to find this balance between liberty and equality, whether it's, you know, the state governments versus a national government or a relationship between the state governments, the idea of taxation. But it's the Civil War that creates this aftermath in which individual wealth was expressed like never before in American history. And it's those ideas, that power of choice that gets married with American individualism, the fact that I have this right to kind of become what I want. And you start to see the rise of the super rich, like I had mentioned, and even just within middle management. And, and this wealth gap is really the big thing that's going to start to divide these ideas of, of liberty and equality. Because wealth and racial politics heightened gaps and created a sense to protect liberty or the, the power of choice, American politicians have created a culture that supports a certain type of limited equality. And that's, that's the key. American political history has never really been able to create a good umbrella term or definition for what equality truly looks like. And so that's why equality largely comes in steps at a time instead of just one big sweeping policy. Equality is to have equality to areas in the law, and it's supposed to apply to areas like law, but not necessarily other areas like wealth and age and income and criminal history. And most Americans agree that these distinctions of equality are fair. Like it's okay to have a difference in policies between an older person and a younger person. So for example, a movie theater that refuses to admit anybody under the age of 17 for a rated R movie or anybody under the age of 13 for a PG 13 movie. Most Americans look at that idea and say, that's okay because maybe that, that young person hasn't acquired the knowledge of the world yet in order to handle the events that 
that they would see on screen if they were allowed to view that movie in the theater. Individualism differentiates between opportunity and outcome or condition. So the idea that everyone can pursue happiness, but not everyone will attain it. And it's largely tied to, you know, do I, am I working for my happiness? And the harder I work, the happier I'm supposed to be. Although I think we know that that doesn't necessarily always come out as an, as an outcome. Americans typically believe that the government should not use its power to ensure equality on condition of things like jobs and houses and clothes and bank accounts. Americans believe that inequalities should exist in those in those spheres. So, for example, education is supposed to mean that the more education I get, the higher paying my job should be and that we as a society an american society have also declared that certain jobs are worth worth a higher level of pay than others as well the government should help provide equal access to things like education and re and recently a more debated topic of that is health care but throughout american history education has really been the the easiest idea to point to in which Americans say there should be equality there, like every person should have access to education, at least in the K-12 realm. And then there's been different fights over, well, what about pre-kindergarten and what about what about post post high school? But that's different podcasts for a different time. The civil rights movement of the 1950s and 60s created the idea of equal access to the law and other groups, including gender groups, so specifically in this case women, racial or ethnic groups. Um, a really good example of this would be Latinos and Native Americans and lifestyle groups, whether it be the LGBTQ plus community or Americans with disabilities have been fighting for equality before the law since not all policy of one group directly apply to all minority groups. And, and for example, Americans with disabilities have certain protections um, like a handicapped stall and a restroom or in a school, for example, there needs to be an elevator or at least some way for a, a student to get from floor one to floor two with something like a wheelchair or crutches and those type of equalities aren't going to be the same as say as say voting rights um, like native americans were the last major ethnic group to get voting rights and that happened in the 1920s whereas after the civil war uh, other eth racial and ethnic minorities were then given voting rights by the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. And then, of course, women got the, the right to vote with the 19th Amendment. And so you see there's different ideas of equality for different groups. And that's going back to the idea that we are largely okay with a limited type of equality and kind of figuring it out as we go. So typically speaking, groups that fight for equality must show where there are gaps and where there is some form of trespass, whether on laws or rights, um, and how these gaps prevent equality in order for the, 
the system to then be changed. And so because Americans largely decided for liberty over equality, liberty is still this ongoing idea that we have to constantly redefine, whereas it's a lot easier because liberty has been around and been a preferred choice to just kind of apply current ideas of liberty to current issues, whereas equality, we're still trying to figure out what that is. Okay, we're getting close, getting ready to head home. This is the last major section, and it's going to be called Ideology American Style. So first, let's talk about what ideology is. Ideology is a system of ideas and ideals, specifically the ones that form the basis of economic and political theory and philosophy. Essentially, we're asking what is the origin and nature of why you believe what you do. And so this could be, this is tied to socializing agents, right? It could be the family, it could be religion, it could be your level of education, it could be your life experiences, it could be your friend group. There's so many different things that can focus on where your, your beliefs come from and why you believe those things that you do. So just as a quick example of this, we're going to take a quick look at abortion and how abortion affects ideology. So ideology regarding abortion generally stems from a personal answer to the question, when does life begin? Now, the, the laws and the courts of the land primarily look at when can a fetus survive outside of the womb, not on when life begins. However, ideologically speaking, we typically focus on that question. So if one believes that life begins at fertilization, their ideology is typically considered conservative. And for somebody who believes that life begins at fertilization, the idea of abortion is pretty abhorrable and typically against the process. And this is where we would claim that somebody is pro-life. If one believes that life begins later in fetal maturation, their ideology tends to be more liberal and that person generally finds abortion less objectionable and is more open to the process. But ideologies build on each other. So wherever you stand at on abortion can also shape your beliefs in things like cloning, stem cell research, surrogate parenting, prenatal care, education government control, even religion, and a role in shaping government and politics. And so some ideologies are, pit, are particular, like it is possible to have a conservative belief only about abortion and liberal beliefs in other places. And so when somebody says that a, an ideology is particular, they are saying that it's limited to a set of interests and personal preferences Whereas other ideologies are pretty total in which they shape a person's entire worldview. Now, most Americans lack a total unifying ideology, and we are picking out these particular ideologies and kind of building our own personal ideology. And because most Americans lack this total unifying ideology, this is why we are still limited with ideas of liberty and equality. And it's also why, it, why 
other ideas like socialism and communism have rarely found success in American life is because we're looking at choosing equality of things over the freedom of behavior. And because socialism and communism are typically total type ideologies in shaping a worldview, that just has never been something that's been a tradition of American political thought. And so due to a lack of unified ideologies, right, these total ideologies, this is why political parties exist in America is because political parties can kind of cherry pick these particular ideologies and start to build their own belief system of these particular ideologies and say, you know, we'll take this one and this one, but not that one. And, and so in, we have two main competing ideologies in America. We have American liberalism and American conservatism. American liberalism currently supports an active national government. The idea to use political institutions to pass policy and rules to address social inequalities for all. Argue, American liberalism argues that the government should refrain from interfering with citizens' moral personal choices in in avenues like marriage and religion and values, as in the government should never show up and tell you, you know, who to marry and what religion to believe in that, I, in that sense. And American liberalism prefers international cooperation to solve world problems and uses foreign policy as a tool to promote freedom and equality worldwide. Most people who subscribe to the ideas of American liberalism would belong to the Democrat Party and are kind of referred to as being on the left. And that comes, of course, from the French Revolution ideas of left versus right. American conservatism endorses less government regulation of economic matters and champions more individual choice and responsibility within business. American conservatism also favors public policies that shape a nation's culture in a moral direction and prefers decision-making more on a local level instead of broad sweeping policies that would apply to a whole. And believe and, and lastly believe that foreign and defense policy are primarily tools to promote an American way of life abroad. So for those that, that, adhere to American conservatism, generally belong to the Republican political party and are seen as being on the right. And so this is where we're at. We're using the history of individual responsibility and liberty and equality to build these ideologies about different issues that currently come up. And with these issues that come up, each political party uses different it kind of like cracks egg and says all right we'll take this idea and we'll and we'll take this part of the idea and then try and kind of create this system of beliefs that makes it easier for us to then identify with a political ideology however i would not say on a personal level that political parties necessarily equal a political ideology because it is possible for example to be a single issue voter and just say i you know whichever party gives me the more favor favorable view on whatever issue I think is important, that's the party I'm going to vote for. It's also okay if you take a look and say, out of the, the top 10 most pressing issues in America, that you might agree with three things that the Republicans say. 
but that might be the driving force behind your your preference and ideology that you're only going to go agree with three and you'll vote Republican because of those three. And that's OK. And you might look at the or you might look at the Democrat side and say, I agree with six out of the 10 things. But that might be enough to drive you to that side. And so, again, political parties are not total unifying perspectives of the world. That's an ideology. Okay, just to wrap it up, first of all, I want to say thank you for hanging out with me today. I hope you had a good time, and I hope you learned a bit about American political philosophy. So just as a wrap-up, American political philosophy was shaped by ideas of individual responsibility, liberty, and equality. Those ideas and themes from our foundations are still present today and still primarily the guiding lights of our arguments and debates on how we react to current issues in American history. American history has created a preference for liberty while figuring out how to ensure equality along the way. But regardless of where you sit philosophically or even on a party scale, remember the Constitution guarantees the process to form a more perfect union. And it's that more perfect union that we're still trying to figure out today. And so your, your ideology can grow over time. It can expand. It can change. You can, there might be life events that change you from one side to the other. And you know what? That's okay if that's something that happens. But remember, just like America, we are all trying to become a little bit more perfect with our thoughts. So thank you, guys. It's been a pleasure. And I will see you next time.